and after the storm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. This week, I will examine 1985's short story collection, Skeleton Crew. With Skeleton Crew, King launches into his second collection of short stories, the first having been Night Shift. Like Night Shift, Skeleton Crew begins with an introduction from King, but unlike Night Shift, he isn't trying to adopt some EC-styled, uh, EC comic-styled persona, describing the darkness of the winter night or inviting you to come closer. By this point, there's no need to try to impress the reader. The days of early courtship are a distant memory. The relationship between King as an author and his audience has developed into something resembling a marriage. He can speak honestly, opening up about how much money he's made from his short stories, and adoringly refer to us as constant reader, which I think is the first time he actually uses this term um, from himself to us. I think the first time we actually see it in print in a Stephen King work is in The Body, but that's within the context of that particular narrative. I think that this is the first time we see him actually use his, his term of affection uh, to us. Skeleton Crew's introduction um, showcases the writing of a much more confident author, you know, one who is a bona fide literary superstar whose appeal has transcended the medium in which he's worked. At this point, it's 1985. At this point, King has published 15 works under his own name, five under the name Richard Bachman, and has seen eight adaptations between TV and film, with two more to come before the end of the year. Needless to say, King has settled into his groove, and I use that term loosely, because in his entire career, while he might have churned out a handful of books that have been less than stellar, the man has never settled. With Skeleton Crew, he returns to the world of short stories, which he'll do once a decade to keep his own mental blade as sharp as possible while proving to the audience that he's still got it. It's proof that behind those eyes, there's a brain that won't stop running, even though it has difficulty, King's words not mine, with the trappings of the short story. A short story is a different thing altogether. A short story is like a quick kiss in the dark from a stranger. That is not, of course, the same thing as an affair or a marriage, but kisses can be sweet and their very brevity forms their own attraction. Writing short stories hasn't gotten easier for me over the years. It's gotten harder. The time to do them has shrunk, for one thing. They keep wanting to bloat for another. I have a real problem with bloat. I write like fat ladies diet. And it seems harder to find the voice for these tales. All too often, the eye guy just floats away. The thing to do is just keep trying, I think. It's better, than to, it's better to keep kissing and get your face slapped a few times than it is to give up altogether. As I did with Night Shift, I'm not going to review every story in this collection, but instead I'm going to discuss a handful, which as follows. Mrs. Short, Mrs. Todd's Shortcut, The Jaunt, The Raft, Word Processor of the Gods, Survivor Type, Grandma, The Reach. And while it might be the first story included in this collection, I will conclude with the most recognizable and popular story from this publication. The story that was later adapted into a feature film from the director of Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile, the man who brought the smash hit The Walking Dead to our television screens, Mr. Frank Darabont. The story, of course, is The Mist. But first, let's start with Mrs. Todd's shortcut. From Wikipedia. David, friend of a caretaker named Homer, is an older man who is spending his later years hanging out at the local gas station in a small town. He narrates a tale about Mrs. Todd, who is obsessed with finding shortcuts. Homer admires her persistence, but begins to have doubts, as there are only so many shortcuts someone can find. Mrs. Todd's habit of resetting her odometer shows remarkable evidence that something weird is going on. He also discovers evidence that her shortcuts are taking fewer miles than are in a straight line between the trip origin and its destination, something that would be impossible in reality. Mrs. Todd compares the shortcuts to folding a map to bring two points closer together, suggesting that she has discovered a warped version of reality, like a wormhole. Mrs. Todd finally convinces Homer to take one of the special shortcuts. Homer loses his hat to the grasping arms of a living tree and sees road signs and strange, unnatural animals that he cannot explain. 
Frightened, Homer does not wish to take any more rides. Nonetheless, Mrs. Todd is changing and growing younger with each trip that she takes, and the appeal of this overwhelms Homer, despite the car, spark, sorry, despite his having found a smashed, horrifying, rodent-like creature on the grill of her car. She brushes this off, seeing the creature as an unfortunate yet normal animal. In the end, Homer, who is looking younger himself, gets into Mrs. Todd's car in front of his friend. It's implied that Mrs. Todd, who is by this time considered to be a missing person altogether with her car, will now take him into whatever new world to which she has found a shortcut. Now, being a New Englander myself, one that hails from, as King puts it in this story, that strange, angry, fuming state of Massachusetts, I know the importance placed on shortcuts. About, as he puts it, the fact that there's something powerful about knowing the shortest way, even if you take the longer way, because you know your mother-in-law is sitting at home. The fact that the entire short story is an ode to the concept of shortcut cracks me up. It's a love letter that flies by, like a shortcut. But don't let it fool you, just because it's centered around a woman's obsession over shortcuts doesn't mean that that's what it's all about. Crammed into this small space can be found an examination of time, the worth of our lives, specifically the time that we have while that we're alive, the challenge of preconceived notions as evidenced by Mrs. Todd's blue ribbon diatribe on page 214, which I will read right now. Do you know, Homer, that a man wrote an article in Science Today in 1923 proving that no man could run a mile in under four minutes? He proved it with all sorts of calculations based on the maximum length of the male thigh muscles, maximum length of stride, maximum lung capacity, uh, maximum heart rate, a whole lot more. I was taken with that article. I was so taken that I gave it to Worth and asked him to give it to Professor Murray in the math department at the University of Maine. I wanted those figures checked because I was sure that they must have been based on the wrong postulates or something. Worth probably thought that I was being silly. Ophelia's got a bee in her bonnet is what he says, but he took them. Well, Professor Murray checked through that man's figures quite carefully. Do you know what, Homer? No, Mrs. Those figures were right. The man's criteria were solid. He proved, back in 1923, that a man couldn't run a mile in under four minutes. He proved that. But people do it all the time. And do you know what that means? No, Mrs., I said, although I had a glimmer. It means that no blue ribbon is forever, she says. Someday, if the world doesn't explode itself in the meantime, someone will run a two-minute mile in the Olympics. And I'm sorry, uh, as you can hear, um, my dogs are caught up in the Christmas spirit. Uh, they are very excited, and as I'm recording this, they just will not sit still whatsoever. And typically, they you, you've probably heard them a lot in the back of some of these podcast episodes. Um they're, they're wound up today. They're pretty wound up today. Anyway, um, <laughs> someday if the world doesn't explode itself in the meantime, someone will run a two-minute mile in the Olympics. It may take a hundred years or a thousand, but it will happen because there is no ultimate blue ribbon. There is zero, and there is certainty, and there is morality, but there is no ultimate. And there she stood, her face clean and scrubbed and shining, that dark hair of hers pulled back from her brow, as if to say... Just you go ahead and disagree if you can. But I couldn't, because I believe something like that. It's much like what the minister means, I think, when he talks about grace. You ready for the blue ribbon winner for now, she asks. Um, and also crammed into this small space can also be found the celebration of natural beauty and the roads to get there, aging, the flexible nature of time and space, of independence, now, in fact, King uses the folding map trick that's later popularized by Sam Neill in Event Horizon, um, which is neat. And and though I've heard, and I could be wrong because I haven't seen it yet, but I, I think that um, I, I heard that Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, the uh, same thing happens. Now, with the story, we're presented with the first-person perspective, which King has used a lot um, in, in portions of Carrie in various short stories, including Jerusalem's Lot, which I reviewed in a Night Shift episode. And at this point in his career, uh, most recently with the Dennis sections of Christine. By presenting David as our narrator, it allows us to keep our distance from the more fantastic elements of the story. Another version of the story would be present would be to present it through the eyes of Mrs. Todd and experience the, the wonder of traveling between worlds. 
Because we had just experienced that with the talisman, we don't have to here. The first-person perspective of David makes for an H.P. Lovecraft-style narrative, in the sense that Lovecraft's character is always bumped up against the unexplainable. Just a brush, and the brush up against an alien concept would be enough to drive one to madness. Here, we have the fantastic juxtaposed against the ordinary, as established by the setting of Castle Rock, Stephen King's go-to fictional town. The setting serves to highlight Mrs. Todd's adventures, the ones we don't get to see, only get glimpses and hints of, whether it be her aging backwards or the strange creatures that pop up throughout the text. Castle Rock is our anchor in the text, the, the recognizable world that includes descriptions like the one on page 206 of the paperback edition. It was October, which is a peaceful time in Castle Rock. Lots of the lake places still get used on the weekends, but the aggressive, boozy summer socializing is over by then. And the hunters, with their big guns and their expensive non-resident permits, pinned to their orange caps, haven't started to come to town yet. Crops have been mostly laid by, nights are cool, good for sleeping, and old joints like mine haven't yet started to complain. In October, the sky over the lake is passing fair with those big white clouds that move so slow. I like how they seem so flat on the bottoms, or how they hold a little gray there, like with a shadow of the sundown foretold. And I can watch the sun sparkle on the water and not be bored for some space of minutes. It's in October sitting on the bench in front of Bells and watching the lake from afar off. I still wish that I was a smoking man. Also contributing to the fantastic nature of the story is the title itself. Mrs. Todd's shortcut invokes Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, a Disney ride inspired by Mr. Toad's automobile obsession from The Wind in the Willows. The connotation helps reinforce the magical events of the story. This can't be coincidental. Homer makes mention of frogs and tadpoles on page 208. Now, I, there's so many sections of this text that I could read um, for a quote, right? Um, and I wanted uh, to, to read them. Um, but that would just mean that I'd have to read the whole story to you. As I stated earlier, the concept might be about a magical shortcut. But the narrative... Um, is a shortcut itself to larger ideas, philosophies, themes, and like so many shortcuts, they get you there in half the time, but they don't skip out or cheat you with the beauty of the world around you. So that's uh, Mrs. Todd's shortcut. Strongly recommend it. Next up, we have the jaunt from Wikipedia. As a family prepares to be jaunted to Mars, the father entertains his two children by recounting the curious tale of the discovery and the history of this crude form of teleportation. He explains how the scientists who discovered it quickly learned that it had a disturbing and explicable effect on the mice sent through. The mice would either die instantly or behave erratically before dying moments later, eventually concluding that they could only survive the jaunt effect while unconscious. That, the father explains, is why all people must undergo general anesthesia before using the jaunt. The father spares his children the grusy, semi-apocalyptic account of the first human to be jaunted awake. A condemned murderer offered a full pardon for agreeing to this experiment. The man came through and immediately suffered a massive heart attack, living just long enough to utter a single cryptic phrase, It's eternity in there. The father doesn't mention that since the inception of the technology, roughly 30 people have, voluntarily or otherwise, jaunted while conscious. They either died instantly or emerged insane. One woman was even shoved alive into eternal limbo by her murderous husband, stuck between two jaunt portals. The man was convicted of murder, though his attorneys attempted to argue that he was not guilty on the grounds that his wife was technically still alive. The implications of that argument only served to secure and hasten his execution. The father then reveals the nature of why any conscious being goes insane or dies after being jaunted. It's theorized that while physically the process occurs nearly instantaneously, the condemned man traveled two miles between two portals in .00000067 seconds, to a conscious mind it lasts an eternity and beyond. One is simply left alone with their thoughts in an endless field of white for an unthinkable length of time suggested to be possibly anywhere from hundreds to billions of years. If one is stuck in this horrific limbo, their mind will either shut itself down or be driven insane from the lack of eternal stimuli. However, the father is careful in his wording to keep from scaring his family. 
After the father finishes his story, the family is subjected to the sleeping gas and jaunted to Mars. When the father wakes, he finds that his inquisitive son held his breath while being administered the general anesthesia in order to experience the jaunt while conscious, and has been rendered completely insane. Hair suddenly lengthened and white with shock, cornea is yellowed with age, the boy, though hardly resembling one by now, having experienced an eternity and beyond, cackles like a lunatic and confirms the terrible nature of the conscious jaunt, shrieking, Longer than you think, Dad! Longer than you think! The boy then claws his own eyes out. Now, when I think of Stephen King's short stories, the jaunt is one of the first ones that I can think of. I remember reading it for the first time in the back of my parents' car on the way to some vacation, and it's stuck with me ever since. The story is a great entry in the genre of speculative science fiction, and it reads like an unaired episode of The Twilight Zone, starting with the family, which will serve as bookends to the story, cutting to the past where um, the, the scientist perfects the jaunt and cut back to the family complete with the little twist ending. The jaunt is a jaunt, moving us from Earth to Mars from, uh, to the future to its past, and the reader is the little boy, awake for the entire experience. It's a horrifying concept. It's eternity in there. Not a hundred years, not a thousand. Eternity. The body, demolecularized, existing in a state which, is, which does not need air or sustenance, experiences the impossible, the infinite, and crushes the mind as a result. And up next, we have The Raft. Now, The Raft is about four college students, Two young men, Randy and Deke, and two young women, Rachel and Laverne, who go out to swim on a remote Pennsylvania lake during the autumn when nobody is around in order to celebrate the end of summer. While swimming out to the raft in the middle of a lake, Randy notices a mysterious oil slick substance that appears to go after the girls as they reach the raft. Deke and Laverne ridicule Randy's suspicions that the oil slick was chasing the girls, refusing to take the situation seriously until Rachel touches the water near the creature. The oil slick, revealed to be a living creature, instantly grabs her finger and pulls her into the water where it covers her with itself. Quickly realizing the danger, the trio are forced to ignore Rachel's screams for help as the creature violently dissolves and absorbs her. After the initial panic, the group contemplates their next course of action. Swimming past the creature is not an option as it moves with lightning speed. The group has driven eight miles off the nearest back road without having told anyone where they are going, making rescue impossible. The group assumes that the creature may leave them alone after some time and attempt to quietly wait, but it doesn't leave. After some time passes, the creature squeezes under the raft. Deke decides he could make a swim to the shore, but as he prepares to jump into the lake, he steps on a crack on the raft and the creature grabs him by his foot. Unable to free their friend, Randy and Laverne watch as Deke is slowly consumed by the creature through the crack from the bottom up. Randy later realizes with horror that he and Laverne could have swum to shore while the creature was busy eating Deke. Now unwilling to risk swimming for shore, Randy and Laverne take turns watching the creature, which changes positions every now and then and produces colors on its surface that hypnotizes and disorients them into almost falling off the raft. One stands while the other one sits. During the course of the night, Laverne convinces Randy that they should sit together and keep each other warm. He eventually touches one of Laverne's breasts, and they end up having sex. During intercourse, Laverne's hair falls over the side of the raft. Before Randy can pull her up, the creature grabs onto her hair and manages to flow over her head, melting her face. Unable to save Laverne, he kicks her over the side of the raft in a panic, quickening her death. A day passes and Randy fantasizes about rescue while beginning to suffer fatigue from lack of sleep. The creature begins to flow under the raft every time Randy tries to sit down, forcing him to remain permanently standing. After nightfall, Randy finally gives up, acknowledging the hopelessness of the situation. He turns to the creature and begins to think that the colors the creature produces will take the pain out of being consumed. Randy does not look away as the creature begins to produce its colors, and the story ends. So I said earlier that when I think of Stephen King's short stories, I think of The Jaunt. I also think of The Raft, a short story popularized by its segment from Creepshow 2, a Stephen King-George Romero anthology that I haven't mentioned yet in any of the podcast reviews, and I apologize for that. Uh, in the chronology of King's works at this point, Creepshow has come out, so I know, I know, I should have talked about it, and I will, I promise. Um, I'm just 
too caught up in the actual uh, books themselves and the the movie adaptations of the books. So in the shuffle, um, Creepshow kind of just got lost. But I will get to Creepshow at some point. Probably as a bonus episode somewhere down the line. Um, but I will I will get to it. Regardless, uh, back to the here and now. Uh, the Raft is one of those simple yet effective stories that just races along. The tension builds. Randy spots an oil slick. What is that? And almost immediately after, it attacks. It's just the blob meets Jaws. It's Aqua Blob. It's a fun story. It's effectively written. Um, and the feeling of isolation is palpable. The four characters are completely isolated, completely vulnerable. October on a lake is beautiful. And for the second year in a row, I've gone camping by a lake. And during those times while kayaking, I always think of this story, and I keep my eyes on the water just in case I see an oil slick. Now, with that said, um, any compliments? Uh, there are. There's also two major issues that I, I have with this story. One, the misogyny present within the male characters and the treatment of Laverne. I mean, it would be one thing if one character was misogynistic, but the problem is both of them are. Randy feels the urge to hit Laverne, and Deke has no remorse when he does so. I don't understand why King made the decision to do this, but it really took me out of the story. You know, the, the second issue is, why the hell, in a story where after two of the four characters have been brutally murdered by an alien monstrosity who melted one and sucked the innards out of the other through the raft floorboards, only after it squeezed so hard it caused blood to jet spray from his mouth, when the survivors are freezing, wet, and scared, does King think it's necessary to include a sex scene? I mean, it's just, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. It, it, it's just, it's not going to happen. Um, so, uh, it, it, I think it's a poor decision. I think that it, it just, it really lowers the quality of the story itself. Um, now, keep in mind that while published in 1985, the story was actually written in the 60s. Um, you know, to me, the sex scene is indicative of a younger writer. Um, and I think that if, King wrote it right now, uh, and and hadn't written it before. That that scene would not would not be there. Um, so the next story is the word processor of the gods. Wikipedia. A middle-aged writer is disenchanted with his tyrannical wife, his disrespectful teenage son, and his life in general. He received he receives the gift of a custom-built word processor from his nephew, a teenage electronics genius. Unfortunately, the nephew suddenly dies in a car accident caused by the writer's abusive brother who was driving drunk. The writer must figure out on his own how to use the gift. He discovers that the word processor enables him to write things into existence, delete things from existence, and alter the fabric of his reality. At least, as long as the rickety word processor still functions. He erases his wife and son, and seconds before the processor's demise replaces them with his nephew and the nephew's kind, gentle mother. Again, you know, I mean, I don't have much to say about it. It's just that the story reads like it belongs with an introduction by Rod Serling. You know, it's quick to the point, has that what-if quality that makes King's work stand out. Next up is Survivor Type. Uh, Survivor Type is written uh, as the diary of a disgraced surgeon, Richard Pine, who, while attempting to smuggle a large amount of heroin on a cruise ship on a round trip from the USA to Thailand and back, finds himself marooned on a tiny island in the Pacific with very limited supplies and no food. A self-proclaimed survivor type, his diary entries documenting his day-to-day -day activities become more and more disjointed and raving revealing his slow mental decay and eventually insanity caused by starvation, isolation, and drug use. Determined to hold out for rescue, he goes to horrifying lengths to survive. After breaking his ankle while attempting to draw attention to himself when he sees a plane passing by, he amputates his foot, then realizes he has to eat it to survive. He continues to amputate his own limbs to use as a food source, ingesting the heroin as a crude anesthetic during the operations. Although he initially keeps track of the dates, the diary entries begin January 26th, his increasing mental instability causes him to lose perception of days past, finally ending with the entries with Feba and Fe 40. His last few diary entries are barely comprehensible, indicate that he has cut off and eating everything below his waist, as well as his ears, and drools uncontrollably as he ponders which body part to consume next. The diary entries end when he cuts off his left hand to eat. 
The ending implies Richard would later be found dead, probably the result of self-cannibalism since the diary was apparently found and read, and Richard mentions that he would have destroyed it right before being rescued. Again, I, I don't have much to say about it. It's just like it's a fun, gruesome story that reads like a twisted uh, version of Flowers for Algernon. Uh, the text devolves as it goes along, showcasing the man's growing madness. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's just it's worth reading. Uh, don't really have much other to say other than that. Um, then we have Grandma uh, from Wikipedia. An 11-year-old boy named George Bruckner is at home with his mother when the two find out that George's 14-year-old brother, Buddy, has broken his leg playing baseball. George's mother must go into the city an hour away to visit Buddy in the hospital, but someone must stay home to watch her own mother, a huge, cantankerous, ancient, bedridden woman. George reluctantly volunteers. As George sets about the kitchen after his mother leaves, he begins to think about his grandma and recalls the first time she came to the house. He had been six years old, and the old woman demanded that he come to her and that she could give him a hug. George was terrified by the idea and cried endlessly. His mother eventually pacified Grandma, promising that he would hug her in time. George waits for his mother to return. As the hours pass, strange thoughts, events he had witnessed earlier, begin to surface in his mind. He recalls overhearing his mother's siblings begging her to care for the old woman. You're the only one who can quiet her down, Ruth. Eventually, Ruth was forced to leave San Francisco and move to Castle Rock, Maine, to care for their mother. George also recalls that Grandma had been kicked out of her church for owning particular books. He finally remembers that the woman had been infertile for a long while, any pregnancies she did achieve ending in miscarriages or stillbirths, and it only was after being excommunicated that she first became pregnant and gave birth to a healthy child. George suddenly hears a scraping sound on the sheets. He imagines Grandma's long, ragged fingernails rubbing against her bed. He enters to check on her and watches the obese, white, almost formless woman for a few moments. Quite suddenly, he recalls other memories, his grandma uttering strange words one night and relatives dying the next morning. George abruptly realizes that his grandmother is a witch, having gained dark powers from reading the forbidden tomes. As George makes this realization, he realizes that his grandma has died. Though terrified, he checks her pulse and holds a mirror before her nose, making sure... Once he's convinced, he prepares to make a phone call to the doctor, only to find that the phone is dead. George opts to wait for his mother to come home, and thinks of the praise he will gain for handling the situation so calmly, until he realizes that he did not cover his grandmother's face. He imagined his brother tormenting him endlessly for the cowardly action. Determined, George enters the dead woman's room and places a sheet over her flabby face. As he does, her hand suddenly wraps around his wrist and holds it for a few moments. George flees the room, injuring his nose in the process. As he tries to rationalize the movement, he hears groaning from the next room, as though the corpse was trying to get off the bed. He then hears his grandma calling him. Come here, Georgie. Grandma wants to give you a hug. George is terrified and races from the room. He hears the enormous woman stumbling after him, and even guesses that as a witch, she waited until she was alone with him to die. His aunt Flo calls, and he tries to explain the situation. Really? Really? That's what Stephen King decided to name the aunt? And tries to explain the situation as Grandma enters the kitchen. Aunt Flo tells him that he must invoke the name of Haster and tells Grandma to lie down in his name. Grandma knocks the phone from his hand, and George screams the phrase repeatedly, You have to lie down in Haster's name. Lie down. Grandma wraps her arms around him. The story jumps to an hour later, with George uh, sitting calmly at the kitchen table. When Ruth returns, George runs to her, explaining that Grandma died. His mother fearfully asks if anything else happened. George denies it and goes off to his room to sleep. It's implied that Grandma has possessed George, turning the boy into an evil warlock, as he used a spell to strike down his Aunt Flo with an aneurysm. The story ends with George grinning wickedly, imagining the kind of torture he will be able to inflict on his brother. Now, Grandma plays off a very real childhood fear that's rarely seen. Children are afraid of the elderly. Not all the time, but the story is rooted in truth. Something about the elderly, I don't know, maybe it's because they exist at the other end of the spectrum, that their nearness to death causes the child on some level to acknowledge his or her mortality. The elderly, therefore, in this case, represents a grim reaper of sorts, bringing death to something that had been unaware to death's very concept. 
So it's not surprising that the threat in the story is George's own grandmother, who is actually a witch. It's a short story, but a horrifying concept. Plus, it brings up the fact that the threat is family, someone who should protect you from threats, not the threat itself. It's a perversion of sorts, and on one level, you could read it as a metaphor for child abuse at the hands of a family member, a young boy corrupted at the hands of a loved one, forever changed. And then we have The Reach, from Wikipedia. Stella Flanders, the oldest resident of Goat Island, has just celebrated her 95th birthday. She has never crossed the Reach, the body of water that separates the island from the mainland, in her entire life. She tells her great-grandchildren when they ask, I never saw any reason to go. Stella comes to realize that the cancer that she's known she has and has kept to herself is in its final stages when she starts seeing the deceased residents of Goat Island. Her visions start with her husband inviting her to come across to the mainland. After her impending death draws near, Stella encounters more apparitions of the dead Goat Island, I'm sorry, the dead of Goat Island, and she makes peace with the knowledge that it's her time to go. Dressed in her warmest clothes, plus her son's long johns and hat, Stella heads across the frozen reach towards the mainland. As she starts her trek, it starts to snow. The blowing wind, along with the snow, makes it difficult for her to find her way, and she becomes afraid of being lost in the storm. Along her walk, she meets up with the woman who was her best friend, Annabelle, as well as several others. When the wind whips the hat off her head, her dead husband, Bill, is there and gives her his hat. She's surrounded by her friends and her family, and they sing to her as she crosses over from this life. Stella Flanders is found dead sitting upright on a rock on the mainland. Her son Alden recognizes his father's hat, comes to believe that the dead sing, and that they love those still living. I don't have much to say, other than it's a beautifully written little story. It even includes a shout-out to the previous Stephen King short story, one included in this very collection, The Raft. Stella reflects on the same question that Randy from The Raft had asked. Do you love? Okay, here we go. Uh, half an hour into it, um, and now we come to the, the the big story in this collection. That is The Mist. So I'm just going to launch right into the Wikipedia summary and then start just jumping all around through The Mist and playing around with all the tentacled creatures that The Mist contains. From Wikipedia. The morning after a violent thunderstorm, a thick, unnatural um, mist quickly spreads across the small town of Bridgeton, Maine, reducing visibility to near zero and concealing numerous species of bizarre creatures which viciously attack anyone and anything that ventures out into the open. The bulk of the story details the plight of a large group of people who become trapped while shopping in a town supermarket, among them a commercial artist named David Drayton. David's young son, Billy, and their estranged neighbor, Brent Norton, who accompanied them into town after a tree smashed Brent's car. Amongst others trapped in the market are a young woman named Amanda Dumfries and two soldiers from a nearby military installation, home to what is referred to as the Arrowhead Project. The two soldiers' eventual joint suicide lends some credence to the theory that this project was the source of the disaster. Soon after the mist develops, something plugs up the store's generator exhaust vent. When a young bag boy named Norm steps outside to fix the problem, he's pulled into the mist by a swarm of tentacles. David and Ollie Weeks, the store's assistant manager, witness Norm's death and try to convince the remaining survivors of the danger lurking outside. Norton and a small group of others refuse to believe, accusing David of lying. They venture out into the mist to seek help, where they are killed by a huge unseen creature. This along with a deadly incursion into the store by a pterosaur-like creature and a disastrous exposition to the pharmacy next door lead to paranoia and panic, consuming the remaining survivors. This spiraling breakdown leads to the rise to power of a religious zealot named Mrs. Carmody, who convinces most of the remaining survivors that these events fulfill the biblical prophecy of the end time and that a human sacrifice must be made to save them from God's wrath. David and Ollie attempt to lead the remaining allies in a covert exit from the market, but are stopped by Mrs. Carmody, who orders her followers to kill her chosen victims, Billy and Amanda. However, Ollie, using a revolver found in Amanda's purse, kills Miss. <laughs> Sorry. Those are my dogs. Those are my dogs. They just came in from outside. Um, however, Ollie, using a revolver found in Amanda's purse, kills Mrs. Carmody, causing her con congregation to break up. En route to David's car, Ollie is bisected by the claw of a very large creature similar to a giant lobster or crab. 
David, Billy, Amanda, and elderly yet tough school teacher Hilda Repler reach the car and leave Bridgeton, driving south for hours through a mist-shrouded, monster-filled New England. After finding refuge for the night, David listens to a radio, and through the overwhelming static, possibly hears a single word broadcast, Hartford. With that one shred of hope, he, re he prepares to drive on to an uncertain future. So first of all, this is written in first-person perspective, which is a technique that King has adopted for other short stories found in this uh, collection, including uh, Survivor Type and Mrs. Todd's Shortcut. And The Mist is one of King's more recently realized masterpieces. I say this not because it was recently published. As I've said earlier, uh, Skeleton Crew was published in 1985. I say it because the movie, directed by Stephen King constant reader Frank Darabont, was released in 2007 and holds a 73% Rotten Tomatoes rating and a 7.2 out of um, 10 average on IMDb. While these scores aren't stellar, I think they're higher than average, and anecdotally The Mist is one of my favorite King adaptations. With the adaptation, Darabont dabbled in survival horror, a genre which he was so enamored with, he brought The Walking Dead to life on AMC, and the rest is history. The Mist works because of its simplicity. First, the image of the mist rolling off the lake is a striking one, ominous in its everyday quality, and like the best horror fiction, it changes how you look at something commonplace. Just as Jaws did for the water, Psycho did for showers, and The Ring did for televisions, the mist makes you shiver just a little when you see billows of fog rolling towards you. And while we all might not have lake houses, we've all experienced storms, and the threat of a storm gone so badly like this one grounds us in an everyday setting. The family's not overly heroic or special. Just like the best king characters, David is the everyman. It's not hard to imagine us in his place, and that's the point. He's our vessel into this story. And like The Walking Dead, which Darabont will later go on to produce, the largest threat isn't the danger that lurks in the fog no more than it is the lurching horde of the undead. Rather, the biggest threat in the face of a crisis is ourselves, namely the threat of the other, seen here in the form of Mrs. Carmody, who whips everyone into a religious zealotry, infectious madness that scares me worse than any fog creature. The first seven pages are dedicated to the storm that sweeps over the lake on the tail end of a heat wave. It showcases how small we are contrasted with the power of nature, and it's the symbolic foreshadowing of what will soon come. The tree that slams through the window was representative of David himself, the tree that stood guard over his family for generations. Now that it's fallen, crashed through the living room window, a room synonymous with family, it symbolizes the impending doom of David's family. The section concludes with a prophetic dream in which a towering god crashes about the land. This, of course, will come true of sorts, as the end of the story includes the image of a towering behemoth crossing the land in front of them. On page uh, 33, Steph expresses her concern about the situation, giving credence to the superstition of the Black Spring referenced by our story's antagonist, Mrs. Carmody. Naturally, with the world just having experienced what seems like an apocalyptic event, it's not surprising to dwell on superstition. The scene of the family exploring the wreckage reminds me of an October snowstorm we had a few years back. It was the final dis uh, natural disaster to strike our area that began with a destructive tornado in the spring, uh, a microburst in the summer before giving way to a heavy downfall of snow in the days before um, Halloween, when the leaves had yet to fall from their branches. The limbs, weakened from the tornado months before, combined with the weight of the heavy leaves under the falling snow, proved too much for the trees, which fell through the night and exploded on the ground like bombs crashing from the sky. The damage took down power lines, destroyed houses, cars took lives, and looters were becoming uh, so much of a danger that the National Guard was called in. Most went without power for a week, some more. Personally, I, personally my, uh, my wife and I made the most out of it, and despite the cold, um, I, I'm able to look back on the time fondly. And it makes me think of Billy's enthusiasm. While it caused destruction and the worst of society took advantage of the situation, there's something about these types of things that helps create a community, as it provides a shared experience that we all have to endure together. It's no surprise that the destruction at the lake mends, however weakly, the schism between Norton and David. The bond over the shared destruction, David's boathouse, which Norton apologizes for, and Norton's T-Bird. Before that can happen, however, King masterfully presents the coming of the mist with ominous glee rolls against the wind the way Pennywise's balloons from it does creating an unnatural occurrence and from there David thinks of the Arrowhead project which invokes a 1950s b-horror movie when the experiments of scientists the government and the army go horribly awry nothing horrible or out of place has happened yet but King imbues 
So much menace in the oncoming mist that we can't help but begin to grow tense. And that tension only skyrockets when David reveals that he hasn't seen his wife since he left his house. Why, we wonder. What will happen? Will it have something to do with the mist? The answer is, of course. The title of the story, after all, I imagine that's only entitled The Mist and not The Fog because John Carpenter had beaten him to the punch. The third section is simply entitled The Mist, and it's where King reminds us that while he's a master craftsman of all genres, he's the master of horror. First, he gathers his players within the grocery store, Ollie, David, Billy, Norton, Bud Brown, Mrs. Carmody, the Army Boys, and others. It's while when gathered that the threat of The Mist is presented in a raw and chilling fashion. First, the emergency vehicles rush by. Then, shoppers head towards the fog, only to be warmed by the harbinger of doom, Mrs. Carmody. And then the man comes running out of the fog, screaming that something within it had taken a man. Like I said earlier, it isn't what's in the fog that's as frightening as what's in the grocery store. At the first hint of catastrophe, the crowd begins to grow hostile, each uncaring of the next. The threat without is teased while the threat within begins to grow. And then the mist comes. And with it, the screams. The mist exacerbates the crowd, from the girl who shoves Mrs. Carmody to the guy who threatens Billy, to David's threat of the man and the bickering husband and wife over the trivial detail of which town had suffered through an earthquake. The section concludes with the woman entering the fog to return home in a wonderfully written scene which illustrates the willing impotence of our characters on pages 63 to 64 of the paperback edition. Aw, lady, listen, the teenage kid who had shouted at Mrs. Carmody began. He held her arm. She looked down at his hand, and he let her go, shamefaced. She slipped into the fog. We watched her go, and no one said anything. We watched the fog overlay her and make her insubstantial, not a human being anymore, but a pencil-ink sketch of a human being done on the world's whitest paper. And no one said anything. For a moment, it was like the letters of the keep right sign that had seemed to float on nothingness. Her arms and legs and pallid blonde hair were all gone, and only the misty remnants of her red summer dress remained, seeming to dance in white limbo. Then her dress was gone too, and no one said anything. Things escalate quickly in the next scene, when David enters the storage room to shut off the generator, and when in the dark hears something sliding against the wall outside. It speaks to the more primal instincts within us, it makes the skin on our arms crawl. It's the monster in the dark, and it's coming for us. And when the monster comes, it comes on strong in an incredible scene that sets the stage for how much danger we're in, as well as reveal the character traits of David, of Ali, of Jim, and others. It's gripping, it's unrelenting, it's horrific. Suddenly we feel completely vulnerable. Despite being shielded from the mist, we're not safe from the creatures that inhabit it. And while David is able to beat back the creature from without, the tension does not abate as Norton not only refuses to believe the story um, of dead bag boys and blood-sunken tentacles, he believes it's a trick being played on him by the locals. This does not come out of the blue. Because King had established the relationship between the two men, it was only a matter of time. And with Norton, we have a ticking time bomb. Much like Mrs. Carmody, whose length of sizzling fuse is unknown. And rather than draw clear lines in the sand, King makes those lines foggy. For instance, when David addresses the store, his allies are composed of Myrtle, Jim, and Mrs. Carmody, two men he had just physically assaulted and the woman who will whip the store into a bloodlust. A lesser writer would have been content with distinct camps of good and evil, but not King. And while it might be a stretch to call a story of monsters in the mist realistic, the shifting allegiances and fear of the survivors certainly ring true. And within the camp of survivors, King again demonstrates that while he may be a master of horror, he is equally as talented at, at crafting the quiet hero, embodied here in the form of Ali, soft-spoken, good-natured, not one destined for greatness, but in the face of danger, chooses to stand his ground simply because it's the right thing to do. Ali, more so than David, speaks to my central thesis of Stephen King's philosophy that despite the horrors and bleakness found within the stories, the bleakness and the horrors are offset by the goodness found within the everyman the meek. I'm going to get to the movie later, um, and spoilers for the movie, but the ending could not be any different. But like I said, I'm going to get to that later. 
Blood sacrifice. When Mrs. Carmody utters those words, the reader should begin to grow more afraid of fellow man than the pallid things within the mist. King teases the depths to which humanity can sink before pulling back and focusing on the more rational aspects of humanity, with the group attempting to problem-solve, rationalize what they can. The rationalizing can be a defense, yet it's also the most dangerous thing one can do in the situation, as it is for Norton and his crew, who over-rationalize the situation. Norton has committed to the rational, to the extent that when he leaves the grocery store, a part of him knows he's going to die, but does so because he can't be proven wrong. He enters the mist behind a shield of rationality, and we see how effective that shield holds up against the unknown. As the short story progresses, King steers the narrative into a gratuitous sex scene. It's not as gratuitous as the one in the raft, but I find it gratuitous nonetheless. One can argue that in the face of death, two bodies will seek each other out as a defiant act against their own demise, a celebration of life. However, I imagine people would be a little bit too scared, too tired, too dirty, too horrified to get into it. Um, I'm no prude, but this does not ring true to me. What doesn't ring false is the nail-biting scene in which uh, the pharmacy expedition encounters the spiders. The reveal of the spiders, first the webs, then the dangers of the webs to the dog-sized spiders themselves is masterfully constructed. The spiders just don't serve the scene but provide one aspect of the climax's conflict. Our heroes are stuck between a rock and a hard place, specifically between death from sacrifice by a religious fanatic or from the horrors in the mist. Death from the worst aspects of humanity or from the inhuman. The fact that our characters choose the inhuman speaks volumes on what King is saying about the dangers we present to ourselves. Without the spider scene, the odds wouldn't seem so stacked against our heroes. The threats in the mist are everywhere, in many forms, and ultimately, they're more appealing than the threats from within the store. Ironically, Mrs. Carmody gets her blood sacrifice after all. She probably just didn't expect it that she'd be the one to offer it. And even funnier, her death brings the salvation that she promised. It's a clever twist that serves as the perfect ending to that plotline. Though the end doesn't come there. They escape, only to encounter more death, more mist, more things, which grow worse and worse, suggesting no hope for civilization. On page 151. A shadow loomed out of the mist, staining it dark. It was tall as a cliff and coming right at us. I jammed on the brakes. Amanda, who had been catnapping, was thrown forward. Something came. Again, that's all I can say for sure. It may have been the fact that the mist only allowed us to glimpse things briefly, but I think it just as likely that there are certain things that your brain simply disallows. There are things of such darkness and horror, just as I suppose... There are things of such great beauty that they will not fit through the puny human doors of perception. It was six-legged, I know that. Its skin was slaty gray that mottled to dark brown in places. Those brown patches reminded me absurdly of the liver spots on Mrs. Carmody's hands. Its skin was deeply wrinkled and grooved, and clinging it to it were scores, hundreds of those pinkish bugs with the stalk eyes. I don't know how big it actually was but it passed directly over us. One of its gray, wrinkled legs smashed down right beside my window, and Mrs. Repler said later that she could see the underbelly of its body, though she craned her neck up to look. She saw only two cyclopean legs going up and up into the mist, like living towers until they were lost to sight. For the moment it was over, the scout... I had an impression of something so big that it might have made a blue whale look the size of a trout. In other words, something so big that it defied the imagination. Then it was gone, sending a seismological series of thuds back. It left tracks in the cement of the interstate track so deep I could not see the bottom. Each single track was nearly big enough to drop the scout into. For a moment, no one spoke. There was no sound but our breathing and the diminishing thud of that great thing's passage. And then, uh, that's, that's the end. Um, I... I, I was going to talk about the, the ending of this compared to the ending of the movie, but I'm going to save that for next week's podcast in which I review um, the adaptation, uh, Frank Darabont's adaptation of the movie. So all that leaves right now is um, our Stephen Kingisms. Um, and if you haven't listened to a Stephen King cast before, 
Um, the Stephen Kingisms are tricks and traits and tropes and patterns that you'll see from one text to the next. So here we go. Well, I didn't review the monkey, which is often mistaken for the basis um, of the horror movie Monkey Shines. I uh, do want to make note about Stephen King's thoughts on the story as evidenced in the notes section of the collection. Um, in it, he writes of the monkeys with the symbols. They reminded me of the lady with the shears, the one who cuts everyone's thread one day. And as Stephen King fans may know, uh, the Stephen King universe, uh, that lady is actually a bald little doctor, as we will see later in the novel Insomnia. The second one is one's mind being lost in another dimension for eternity. We see it here in the jaunt, and it's reminiscent of the deadlights in it. Keep in mind that as the novel progresses, the children wage war with the clown. The threat is not necessarily death, but the possibility of forever being lost inside of plane of existence known as the deadlights, conscious and helpless. This type of scenario brings about a very specific type of fear, one of despair. You know things are truly bad when a threat of death is the better option. Number three is the evil car, as seen in Trucks, Christine from a Buick 8, the road virus heads north, um, and the everyday danger of cars as seen in, in The Gunslinger and Pet Cemetery, Cujo, Dreamcatcher. Here we have another evil vehicle, the story Uncle Otto's Truck. With Mrs. Todd's shortcut, we have the car not as an evil object, but as a vehicle for exploration through which magical lands, similar in a sense from a Buick 8, uh, will be explored. Number four is Monsters in Between Worlds. With The Mist, uh, King presents bona fide monsters straight out of a Lovecraft story, tentacled monstrosities. With the army project gone wrong, it has allowed for a back door to open, uh, which Dark Tower fans may refer to as Toadash Spaces, the place in between worlds. Whether the creatures come from a fog-draped planet or dimension, or in between uh, the cracks of another universe altogether, King has touched upon an alien threat infringing on our world with doorways or thinnies where the fabric between the worlds is thin, as it is in the Marston House from Salem's Lot, the Overlook Hotel from The Shining, the Micmac Burial Ground from Pet Cemetery. Monstrous creatures have shown up in The Talisman and Revival. Mrs. Todd's shortcut shows a woman traveling through worlds that might include similar monsters. We'll see these types of creatures again because in the worlds of Stephen King, they're all around us, existing on a different frequency or plane of existence. And every now and then, when the world tunes its cosmic radio, what was once static now becomes clear, and the monsters come rushing in. Number five is Castle Rock. With Mrs. Todd's shortcut, he returns to his most famous fictional town, seen previously in The Dead Zone, Cujo, The Body, referenced in Pet Cemetery, and will later be seen in The Dark Half, The Sun Dog, Needful Things, and a handful of others. Um, Cujo is explicitly referenced here as well. Castle Rock is also the setting for Grandma. In Grandma, the grandmother happens to be friends with Henrietta Dodd, the mother of murderous Frank Dodd from The Dead Zone. Number six is Getting Younger. With Mrs. Todd getting younger with her jaunt through other dimensions, we see her getting younger, which will also be explored by King in the forgotten TV miniseries The Golden Years. The Golden Years, by the way, included other Kingisms such as The Shop and a character named Captain Trips. Number seven is the following description, the kind of hair that makes a man wonder what it would look like spread over a pillow. King uses this description to highlight a woman's irresistible beauty in Mrs. Todd's shortcut, and at least in one other book, The Stand, with Nadine Cross. Number eight is the catchphrase. Here it's, do you love, as seen in The Raft. Number nine is the teacher. If characters aren't writers in his books, many times his characters are teachers, as seen in The Word Processor of the Gods. Number 10 is the magic device, as seen in the word processor of the gods, which bears similarities to the ones found within his sci-fi alien takeover novel, The Tommyknockers. Number 11 is a child being left alone with a dying relative, seen here in Grandma and with Zelda in Pet Cemetery. Number 12 is the old witch and the child. With Grandma, it won't be the last time we see an old witch prey on a younger person. We've seen it in some form with the hag in room 217 from The Shining, and we'll see it again with Rhea the Coos from Wizard in Glass and her jealousy of Susan's youth and beauty. And we see it in another Skeleton Crew story, The Mist, as Mrs. Carmody wants to use Billy as a blood sacrifice to the creatures in the fog. Speaking of which, with Grandma, King invokes connotations from The Wizard of Oz, 
the Wicked Witch, and a storm that blows outside. He'll later revisit imagery from Wizard of Oz with the Wizard in Glass. Number 14 is The Evil Preacher. Here in the mist, it's Mrs. Carmody, but we've seen it before um, with, though technically not a preacher, Margaret White, um, and then fellow preachers Sylvia Pitson, Sunlight Gardner, and Charlie Jacobs in Revival. Number 15 is the military experiments that bring about the end of the world. Here in the mist with the Arrowhead Project and in the stand uh, when the superflu escapes the facility. And number 16 is spiders, as seen horrifyingly in the mist, as well as the talisman, it, rose matter, and the dark tower. And so that's all I have right now, everyone. Um... If you are fans of the Dark Tower, uh, stick around for after the credits. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Dark Tower um, rather than talk about it here. It's not going to take long, but I, I like to keep just Dark Tower specific stuff um, after the uh, after the music plays out. So if you haven't done so already, feel free to write into the Stephen King cast at uh, Stephen King cast at yahoo.com. Uh, you can like us on um Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, uh, Tumblr, Pinterest, um, and uh, feel free if you have any time to write a review on iTunes. And just everyone, thanks for listening. Um, like I said, for fans of the Dark Tower, stick around because um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Dark Tower and some Dark Tower connections here. Um, and if you're not a Dark Tower fan, if you haven't gotten to the Dark Tower, then uh, I'll see you here next week when I review Frank Darabont's 2007 adaptation of the most famous story from Skeleton Crew, The Mist. So everyone have a great week, and I'll see you here next week. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen Kingcast. Turns my whole world misty blue Oh, honey Just the mention of your name Turns the flicker to a flame Hey, everyone. Uh, welcome back. Uh, like I said, I'm not going to take uh, too much longer, but if you are listening now, then you are sticking around for a little bit of discussion around the Dark Tower and the Dark Tower's relationship with um, the events depicted within um, Skeleton Crew. So I've already discussed the mist being an example of creatures from Todash spaces entering our world. The mist creatures are similar to other alien beasts we'll see, hinted at in From a Buick 8. In the final book of the Dark Tower, when Roland and Susanna have to flee from a behemoth in the dark. Dark Tower fans know that there are other worlds than these, which allow for all manners of creatures, including these monsters who sometimes slip into our own, either through doorways, magic cars, thinnies, or interdimensional military projects gone wrong. Now, I want to talk not necessarily about a Dark Tower related connection but a Stephen Kingism that I couldn't talk about earlier because in discussing it, I'd have to give away a major plot point of the Dark Tower. And that's the power of the author as a god in his world. So if you have not finished the Dark Tower series, you need to turn back now because I'm going to get into heavy spoilers. Okay? So if you're still listening, you know the end of the Dark Tower. So as you know, Stephen King appears in the Dark Tower and his life must be saved by the Cotet so he can finish writing the story, their story, so that Roland can reach the tower. Now in the text, King isn't some god, some great god, but merely a puppet of larger forces at work that he can't understand. It's actually a humbling look at his work. Rather than putting himself up on a pedestal, you know, he acknowledges that he's merely a conduit or tool used by the cosmic forces who need the story told. Regardless, um, it's a kingism that's similar to the word processor of the gods in which we find an author who has the power to rewrite reality. And when uh, the last three Dark Tower books were being released, when they were released, um, in the front section of the book where it had all of Stephen King's works, um, in bold, the publisher had identified... Um, the works that would be related to the Dark Tower, and Skeleton Crew was was in bold. 
And this was before um, the final books were, were published. So when I saw this list and I had read um, Wolves of the Kala and, you know, we were gearing up for Song of Susanna and, um, and the Dark Tower, looking at the list, I saw that Skeleton Crew was in bold and I got worried because if you've listened to my Gunslinger two-part review, you know that I had really bad feelings when I read the re-release of the Gunslinger, and I had a sinking suspicion that there was going to be a um, meta aspect to this story in the sense that Stephen King had really built up the importance of 19, and then 19 was included in the story itself, and it drove someone insane, and I thought that you know, the alley from, uh, the, from the, the gunslinger was driven insane because she realized that she was just a character in a book. So all of these suspicions were kind of swirling around my head. And when I realized that the word processor of the gods was included in Skeleton Crew and Skeleton Crew was identified as a Dark Tower-related novel, I got worried. Um, now, looking back, I don't think that Stephen King was pointing out word processor of the gods. I think that he was really pointing out the mist and the Arrowhead project. Um, but still, it's it's the idea of the author as God is definitely something that um, Stephen King has um, done in a couple in a couple books here. So uh, that's all I've got, guys, for this week. Uh, like I said, stick around next week as I review Frank Darabont's uh, 2007 adaptation of The Mist. Um, so I'll see you here. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen King cast.